Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, as much as we joke, well, joke, he says with air quotes, about how washed we are, I think I may have won the undisputed worst championship the other week. Um, so a neighbor's German Shepherd had decided it was going to race around the street through everybody's yards and was having a rare old time, but my neighbor, not unreasonably, decided he quite liked his dog to come back home. And so picture the scene. Here's the dog galloping toward me, tongue flapping in the breeze. This is my opportunity right here to do some good for my neighbor and so i brace myself thinking all right doggo i gotcha and just as he comes toward me well anyone who's tried to catch a dog that doesn't want to be caught knows exactly what's about to happen <laughs> i zig the dog zags i reach for the dog my foot remains planted to the ground there goes my adductor muscle and several weeks later i'm still limping around so um beat that for being <laughs> washed eric yeah, that, that's pretty bad. H had you asked me three days ago, I couldn't have beaten that. Uh, I would have declared you washed champion, undisputed. Uh, but but now I, I think I can top it and reduce you to merely washed alphabet belt holder status uh, while I am the lineal champ. Um, amazingly, I suffered my own injury caused by dog wrangling. Uh, this was on Friday know. morning. Uh, I was in my home office working and Otis started making his about to vomit noise. Uh, so I sprung out of my chair and sprinted down the hall. He was in my son's room, which is carpeted. And the goal when Otis yep. is about to barf is to get him into the hallway or a bathroom where there's a yep. hard floor. So he's retching, but nothing is coming out just yet. And I grab him around the collar. And as I try to pull him into the hallway, I back up hard into the jutting out handle on my son's door right into where my ass meets my hip. Uh, and I dropped to the floor, wailing in agony. Uh, but I made sure not to release my grip on Otis's collar. I'm still steering him to the hallway. He gets there. I release him and I'm <laughs> collapsed on the floor, making very unmanly sounds uh, as he vomits right next to me. Not on me. Thank God. Um, after after about a minute or so, the pain has subsided enough for me to get up. Um, it's kind of like rising from a body shot shortly after the end of the 10th hour. Um, so I, I hobble about and clean up the mess. And, uh, and now I just have a huge black and blue mark on my upper ass. But uh, but I'm, I'm basically OK. So I would say your injury definitely sounds worse but i would say my story of how i got injured is undoubtedly more pathetic and washed uh and if only you had some kind of nanny cam or something like <laughs> I, I would want to see every step of all of that 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 clip could have gone very viral i yeah. again the the sounds i was making i'm really glad nobody else was home yep once again the uh, the kind of analysis you don't get in any other boxing broadcast, and yeah, you just tell yourself that, just like getting up from a body shot. You you just you tell yourself that. I was at least uh, I wasn't pounding the floor, Oscar De La Hoya style. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, can you imagine the fighter going down from a body shot and commentators gradually getting quiet as he just lays there squealing? <laughs> what are oh, those dear. noises? All right, uh, coming up on this podcast. Our good friend Steve Farhood joins us as we begin our look back at almost 40 years 
of Showtime Boxing. Uh, we look at the latest news as well, including a couple of retirements. I hit Eric with a new fight for the fight game. He hits me with a new top five challenge. We look back on an historic night for Amanda Serrano. But first to Saudi Arabia, where Tyson Fury, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, survived a knockdown to defeat Francis Ngannou, boxing debutante Francis Ngannou, by split decision by scores of 94-95, 95-94, and 96-93 in Riyadh. And look, honestly, to me, Fury never looked particularly comfortable at home in that ring. He switched the southpaw early. He seemed to struggle with timing Ngannou. Then he was dropped by an Ngannou left hook in the third round. I thought he was settling down finally from rounds five through seven as he was just jabbing away at a tiring Ngannou. But then Ngannou found a second win, took round eight, surely, as he was able to land a series of combinations before the whole spectacle ended with two fairly nondescript rounds and Ngannou trying to land his patented Superman punch mm. in the round. I had Fury winning 96-93, but it was a singularly unimpressive performance. The latest effort by a Fury brother to make non-boxers look competitive in the ring. Um, Eric, what the hell happened here? Did Fury underprepare? Was Ngannou better than advertised? And credit where credit is due. You did say last week that Ngannou looked like he wouldn't be a bad boxer. Was it a combination of the two? Something else going on in Saudi Arabia on Saturday night. Yeah, certainly a combination of the two, Fury not taking this seriously at all, and Ngano being quite competent as a boxer. Um, but, you know, I, I don't want to quite go taking a full victory lap on my Ngano assessment. Um, yeah, I said he had decent boxing skills and, and threw his punches well and was far better than than Conor McGregor or, or the guys Jake Paul has fought and, and, and could be a live underdog against some second tier heavyweights. I also gave him no chance against Fury. So uh, I don't want to give myself too much credit here. Uh, Ngannou absolutely exceeded any expectations I had because he not only has decent skills and great athletic gifts, but also because he carried himself as though he belonged in there and could win. Uh, Huge credit for that, for, for not being awed by the challenge he was up against. He was still tense and uncomfortable enough that he gassed and 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 wasn't throwing much in the second half of the fight other than you said he had that good eighth round otherwise he pretty well faded after about the fourth um but the fact that he scored a knockdown and kept this close is a huge moral victory for him and should raise his stock and earn him more boxing paydays um but i, I do want to be clear about one thing francis Ngano did not win this fight if you know how boxing is scored and you know how to resist the urge to give rounds to someone for doing better than you thought they would, then Fury won this fight. Um, I had it exactly the same as you, 96-93. I don't have a problem with finding another round to give Ngannou and scoring at 95-94, but this wasn't really that tough a fight to score. If you weren't scoring it round by round, but rather just judging on emotion at the end of 10 rounds, then I get feeling like it was a robbery, but it wasn't. And... I'm not surprised to see casuals think it was, but I was a little stunned to see a handful of people who know boxing say that Angano won the fight. Um, but anyway, for, for it to even be close, shame on Fury. You know, uh, credit to Angano, but Fury made that possible by, well, you know, we saw how much extra weight he was carrying. Uh, and yeah, Fury's never the body beautiful Uh Great physiques don't win boxing matches, as we know. And if ever there was a fighter who's proven he can perform well despite carrying some extra pounds, it's Fury. 
but you could see a difference from what he looks like when he trains for real. He always has love handles, right? Um, this time he had love. I don't know what's uh, what's bigger than the handle. Love uh, o- over the shoulder straps, I guess we could call them. Um, <laughs> he he still was in better boxing shape, endurance wise, than Ngannou. But you know the extra weight makes him slower offensively and defensively, and it, and it tells you that he figured he could walk in there and win this fight without trying hard. Good for Ngannou for the way he performed for 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 bucking all trends and and shocking the experts just by being competitive, but. What an absolute legacy staining embarrassment for Fury, despite getting his hand raised. Um, And, you know, while we were waiting to see if he would get his hand raised, probably the most anxious man in the audience was Alexander Usyk, who is theoretically slated to face Fury for the undisputed heavyweight championship on December 23rd. Kieran, did what we saw on Saturday change anything about the way you think about that fight? Or does it even still happen? doesn't necessarily affect how I would handicap that fight unless Fury struggles were a symptom of something more significant. And it is possible, right? It is possible. I'm not saying this is likely, but it is possible that at age 35, having not fought anyone who on paper posed a real challenge to him since Deontay Wilder two years ago, that Fury has actually peaked and begun to decline without us noticing it because he just wasn't in a position where anyone could, could take advantage of that. Um, for now, I, I I agree with you. I think the available evidence suggests that he didn't prepare properly for an outing. He didn't regard it as a serious challenge. Um, and he found himself struggling against a man who's only a couple of inches shorter than him, has an even longer reach than him, something of an unknown quantity, and of course has a big punch. None of those apply to Usyk, who may be Fury's equivalent from a skill perspective, but doesn't bring those same elements of size and strength and you know, obviously, it's much more of a known quantity. Um, the question is, however, and you posed it, whether the Usyk fight still happens. Um, obviously, I have no idea about the terms of the agreement that they've reportedly already signed. But given that Fury was already committed to another fight when they made that agreement, I can only assume the provisions around the date remain highly fluid. Um, I wouldn't be completely shocked if this fight still happened on December 23rd, but I wouldn't put money on it right now. Um, I, I suspect rather strongly that Fury's going to stay off social media for a little bit <laughs> and then emerge defiantly, come out with some reason for delaying the fight with Usyk that attempts to deflect blame from him and somehow make Usyk seem responsible. It's same his same old tired act, in other right. words. But, but there's a difference here. Like, he could get away with it before, more or less. Because every time he stepped in the ring, he didn't just win. He was dominant. And his entire public persona is predicated on that. Now he just went nip and tuck with a guy who hadn't fought even a second as a professional boxer beforehand. This all takes him spinning. Um, look, there were some winners in Riyadh, in Ghanu, notably, yeah. um, who potentially enters the mix of heavyweight contenders, even though he'd be an underdog, I think, against all of them. Mixed martial arts more generally as one of their champions or champion in recess, just knocked down the heavyweight champion of the boxing world. Um, Unfortunately, the whole influencer slash crossover boxing genre, um, which as I sort of mentioned between Fury's close call and his brother Tommy's effort the other week is still able to make the case that just about anybody can get into a ring with a pro boxer and compete. Um, But there were a lot of losers. Uh, Fury, obviously, despite winning, but also, and I don't want to be over the top about it, but to some extent, boxing. Yeah. Um, on on one level, for the reason I just stated, that this sort of diminishes the the the, the kind of comments that you and I and others make that 
it's one thing getting into a, a ring and, and boxing uh, fellow influencers or fellow MMA guys, but it's an entirely different matter when you step in against the boxer. Tommy and Tyson Fury are not showing that to be true at the moment. Um, but there's also a deeper, darker reason why this was bad for, for boxing. Look, boxing's never been afraid to sell its soul. It's questionable whether the boxing business even has one. And the creeping acquiescence to Saudi sports washing has been gathering pace. But this felt like more. This was like the biggest splash that the Saudi government has made. The most money it spent to make itself seem like the hip, rich center for big sporting events. Um, look, I, I, there was there was a photograph of the gathered great and the good of boxing that was widely distributed on social media. And it again, I don't want to overstate the case, but instead of being super impressed, almost, almost gave me chills. Look, yeah. I, I don't blame any individual boxers, especially retired ones for making the trip. If you're a retired pugilist, maybe you're struggling a bit for money after a couple of decades of being punched in the head, and out of the blue, you're promised a first-class air ticket, free food and board and luxury accommodation, a nice stipend, and perhaps most importantly, the opportunity to feel, just for a moment, that you're in the spotlight again. Of course you're going to take it. I can't blame individual boxers who do that. But this really felt to me like this was the event in which the sport, the business collectively just gave up on offering any resistance i I feel like i'm sorry guys this is a little bit of a rant but i promise it won't last for long you and i have been vocal but it's felt at times somewhat lonely voices railing against saudi sports washing and well i'm sure there are others in the boxing world out there it just feels this last week made me feel eric as if we're lonelier and lonelier it just feels as if nobody Mm -hmm. cares Mm -hmm. everyone wants to take the money and to what end was this good for boxing did this work for boxing was this good for tyson fury apart from the money he raked in you and i were dming this morning about imagining larry merchant calling that debacle can you picture larry spending the broadcast praising saudi ingenuity and the rapidity with which they built the new arena or eulogizing the fact that there was actually a concert between the co-main event and main event there's no way that he wouldn't have mentioned sports washing oil money climate change gay rights women's (laughs) rights and jamal khashoggi all in his opening statement which of course is exactly why larry merchant wouldn't ever have been anywhere near Riyadh or invited to be there um and again this is nothing new with boxing let us not forget Don King, convicted murderer, promoted classic fights for the benefit of Mabute Sesiseko and Ferdinand Marcos. But this is a particularly egregious attempt by an awful government to make people forget its awfulness, become its supplicants, and boxing is rolling onto its back and begging to be petted on its stomach. And again, to what end? This was not a good week for boxing or for boxing journalism or for anybody really involved. Not at yeah i i you you sort of started that by saying that you felt that you may be overstating the case by saying this was bad for boxing uh, i forget exactly how you phrased it but but no not, that is not overstating the case um I, I saw someone tweet that this it wasn't an embarrassment for boxing it was just an embarrassment for fury i disagree completely this was truly awful for both. I mean, it was certainly awful for Fury. You know, this this one fight is probably enough to shut down any discussions of him being like a top 10 all time heavyweight because he struggled so much with a guy making his pro boxing debut. But yeah, this was terrible and embarrassing for the whole sport. And you can take the Saudi thing out of it and still recognize that um, not just because it suggests 
boxers aren't so much better at boxing than non-boxers after all, um, as though one result erases the whole trend of almost every crossover boxing match that came before it. But it was awful for boxing for at least three reasons I can think of on top of that. Um, One, I follow on Twitter a lot of people in the sports betting world. So my timeline was loaded with people who, again, with a limited grasp on how to score a fight, people who were saying that's why you never bet boxing because every fight is a fix on the cards. Um, LeBron James tweeted exactly why I don't watch boxing. This is really bad when a fight gives someone with LeBron's reach and influence an excuse to make a statement like that. Um, Second, uh, this is goes along with one of the points you were making. It was bad for boxing because now we're going to get more of these crossover fights. I mean, look how many we were getting when the boxer always won comfortably. Uh, so so now, you know, all it takes is one fight like this to convince promoters to string this out for several more years. And third, it was bad for boxing because it wasn't a fun fight to watch. It wasn't a good fight. Uh, it was a close fight and it had one memorable moment of drama, which kind of created ongoing drama of can he pull off the upset but the action was not good i can't imagine a single casual fan watching this and saying i want to watch more boxing now um yeah fury made a crap ton of money i hope it was worth it because he really set his sport back quite a bit on saturday in saudi arabia yep all right, let's talk about other fights. Uh, the, yes, night, <laughs> the night before Fury and Gano, Amanda Serrano stepped into the ring in Orlando, Florida to defend her featherweight belts against Danila Ramos of Brazil over 12 three-minute rounds. The first women's fight in 15 years to be contested over that distance and with rounds of that length and only the second in history. Serrano won going away, emerging with a unanimous decision by scores of 120 to 108. Kieran, any indication that she was in any way affected by boxing for 36 minutes instead of 20? Do you think this will now set a precedent that others will follow? And anything else to offer on Serrano's performance? Yeah, it didn't look like it affected her at all. I mean, she's a first-class athlete, obviously, and, and so she's perfectly capable of going 36 minutes. It's a legitimate question to ask, though, because we pose it to some extent whenever a boxer steps up from six rounds to eight or eight to 10 or 10 to 12. I mean, that, that's a legitimate question to ask. How are they going to survive? How are they going to cope with the extra couple of rounds? Um, and all of those are much smaller increases in terms of needing to, to pace yourself than adding an extra minute to all of those rounds as well. But all of that rarely happens when the boxer has 45 pro bouts under their belt, which is what Amanda Serrano does. Um, she still managed to throw more than a thousand punches. She just paced herself differently. Um, I do wonder, I did have the thought whether if this becomes a more common thing, whether it might actually slightly negatively impact the popularity of women's boxing if the bouts slash 12 three-minute rounds and are properly paced rather than being frenzied sprints for 10 two-minute rounds. Right. Um because I think it's clear that we're seeing a lot of casual fans who don't, to come, to follow on from your point you made just now, who don't actually understand what they're watching when they watch boxing. And so um, better boxing doesn't necessarily seem to make for more fans. But um, I can absolutely see this being the start of something. I know that a lot of women have wanted this. Clarissa Shields is somebody who's been quite vocal about wanting to fight three-minute rounds. I can absolutely imagine her uh, wanted to try and take advantage of that. Katie Taylor, who's an incredible athlete, I'm sure is another one. Um, the question is, you know, whether commissions will allow it. Uh, we don't normally name alphabet 
organizations here, but I'll, I will for this instance, the WBC refuses to consider 12 round women's fights or three minute rounds for women's fights because they claim that there's this mythical study that shows how dangerous it is. Um, I, I do hope it happens. And I, I also hope that, you know, pay rises proportionately as well. Um, I will say that the DAZN commentary made it sound as if Amanda Serrano and Danilo Ramos were working on a cure for cancer in the ring, and that by the end they'd found one. Uh, I, I, I thought it was a little over the top. Um, but all that said, it was it was it was an historic moment and one that definitely needed to come. Um, as for Serrano herself, I will say that our friend Dan Canobio made what I thought was a very good observation during the broadcast, in which he sort of compared Serrano's career or her performances in the ring right now to Manny Pacquiao post-Miguel Cotto. You know, that knockout machine went without a knockout for most right. of his final fights. And it feels as if maybe Serrano, who is a veteran, like I said, she's got 45 fights at this point and has gone up and down in the weights, uh, has put a lot of mileage on her body. Uh, maybe she's sliding into that stage of her career. Um, but even if so, her technique and her punching power and her delivery and her overall ring generalship to me, remains superior to just about anyone she's likely to face in the ring. I thought this was, again, a very good, highly accomplished, very skilled performance by Amanda Serrano. Yeah, I, I don't have much to add uh, except to say that uh, if I could have one wish for women's boxing in 2024, it's Serrano, Katie Taylor, two over yeah. 12 three-minute rounds. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would love to see that. Yeah, agreed. Um also, on Saturday night uh, on the zone from Cancun uh, in Mexico, Oshaki Foster retained his 130-pound belt with a dramatic 12th-round stoppage of Eduardo Rocky Hernandez. Um, Foster had fallen a couple rounds behind on the cards, but then nearly stopped Hernandez in the first half of a wild 11th round before Hernandez came back toward the end of that round. Uh, and then Foster broke through in the 12th. Hernandez not quite recovered from that 11th-round excitement. Uh, Foster dropping him twice and prompting the referee stoppage. Eric, your thoughts on the fight, the stoppage, and that wild 11th round. Yeah, to anyone listening who has not watched this fight, do yourself a favor, watch at least the 11th round. Uh, you don't have to watch the whole fight, although it is a good fight, but watch the 11th round. It is without a doubt the round of the year. Um, there were shades of Gaddy Ward round nine in this. Uh, <laughs> Foster had Hernandez seriously hurt early in the round, was trying to finish. It seemed like it might get stopped. And Hernandez kept punching back and hurt Foster. It really was like Gaddy rallying in the middle of the ninth round when seconds earlier it seemed like he was about to get stopped. Wild 11th round and frenetic 12th round with Foster dropping Hernandez twice and forcing the stoppage with barely 30 seconds left. And yeah, Hernandez was still punching back, but I thought the stoppage was appropriately timed. He had taken a bunch of shots. He'd been down twice. That stoppage, while a teeny weeny bit controversial, I suppose, was far less controversial than this would have been if it had gone to the scorecards. Um, and the 11th and 12th rounds are more dramatic in retrospect, knowing that Foster was getting boned on the scorecards and needed the KO. Um, I should admit, I, I was not scoring carefully um, through 10 it seemed close. That's about all I can say. Seemed Foster was winning some rounds with his skills and his legs. Hernandez winning some with his pressure and his activity. The boxing scene live scorecard had Hernandez up six to four through 10. Seems reasonable. Could have been five, five. Could have been seven, three Hernandez, six, four Foster. Then Foster wins the sensational 11th. 
has at least a 10-7 round going in the 12th, it would have been fairly gross to not have him pulling ahead after all that. One judge had him up three entering the 12th. One judge had him down five. One judge had Hernandez winning every single round. All 11, including the 11th, which great as it was, was not hard to score. Um, That judge was Nicolas Hidalgo of Venezuela. He's been around a long time, been doing title fights since 1990. uh, To again mention the same alphabet group, he is specifically a WBC appointed judge. He has no particular history of controversy. I caught one or two shaky scores on his box rec, but, you know, whatever. Every judge has one or two of those. This score is unacceptable, inexplicable, and he absolutely cannot be given another major assignment until he's reproven himself and worked his way back up. And it sucks that I had to waste a minute talking about someone other than Oshaki Foster and Rocky (laughs) Hernandez, because they're the real story. They both fought their asses off. Hernandez put up a strong challenge. Foster struggled with him, but ultimately delivered. They gave us the round of the year, and thank God the scorecards didn't matter in the end. All right, let's get to the news. Uh, And we have a few items to note. Uh, Takuma Inoue has suffered a rib injury in training, and his bantamweight belt defense against Jerwin Ancajas is now postponed. Oscar De La Hoya told Dan Raphael of ESPN that he is (laughs) planning for Virgil Ortiz to return to the ring in January at 154 or possibly 160 pounds. I mentioned last week that I probably would not have put Keyshawn Davis on top of my list of fighters under the age of 25 had I compiled the list after his majority decision went over Nahir Albright last weekend. Now that majority decision has been changed to a no contest after Davis reportedly tested positive for marijuana, earning him a 90-day suspension from the Texas Commission. In response, Davis tweeted in all caps, I will not stop doing something that is legal and being sold in America. And finally, a pair of retirements. Jorge Linares announced his retirement following his loss last Saturday to Jack Catterall. He finishes with a record of 47-9 and with 26 knockouts. Linares retiring was not especially surprising as he's been in steep decline the last few years. But the other retirement was surprising. And apologies for missing this bit of news. We should have included it on last week's pod. But Emmanuel Rodriguez has announced his retirement with a record of 22-2 and with 13 KOs, despite the fact that he's only 31 years old and his last two bouts saw him stop Gary Antonio Russell and then win an alphabet belt at 118 pounds. Uh, Kieran, thoughts on any of the above? Uh, let's take the retirements first. I'm very happy Lenares is retired. Um, he could easily have retired a few years ago, as you mentioned. He's been, he's been in a pretty steep decline, but uh, it's good that he walks away now, uh, and hopefully with his health intact, not least because he comes across as a really nice guy. Um, I remember when we interviewed him for the podcast on Radio Row in Vegas a, a few years ago, and uh, uh, I think we both really enjoyed talking to him. Yeah. So um, hope hope he's retired in time and wish him all the very best. Uh, Rodriguez is a surprise. Um, but if he's retiring because he's on top and he's just not feeling it anymore, good for him. Um, I feel confident we won't see Linares in a ring again. I don't know Rodriguez at all. But I'd be far less surprised if we saw him again. But I'm always happy when boxers retire on their own terms. And uh, if, if that sticks with Rodriguez, good luck to him as well. Uh, I'm a little anxious about Virgil Ortiz returning to the ring. I, yeah. I feel like I'd be less anxious if it felt as if everyone around him had his health paramount in their minds. But ever since he began experiencing health issues, that just hasn't come across at all. Um Perhaps not forcing himself to make 147 will help him. 
Uh, if he's able to find health and success at a higher weight, fantastic. But there are lots and lots of other ways to earn money. And I really hope Ortiz is going to be okay if he sticks with this one. And I really hope that everybody around him focuses on his health first. Um, and finally, uh, not wanting to put too fine a point on this, but Kishan Davis is an idiot. Um, <laughs> look, I, I like weed as much as the next man, more than the next man most of the time. Uh, and, and I think it's legitimate to question whether it should be banned by athletic commissions. Um, there is a case to be made that it should be because it can, can provide performance enhancing benefits simply by relieving tension and making it easier to rest and recover. But there is a case to be made that if it's now it's not legal everywhere, but if, you know, if it is becoming increasingly accepted, is it something to look at? But the point is, dude, it isn't allowed. It isn't allowed in competition. So don't fucking do it in competition. This is not the hill you want to die on. <laughs> it really is not. And look, I like weed. I'm not a professional athlete. As we've discussed early on in this in this podcast, I can't catch a dog. So that's okay. <laughs> You're a pro athlete. You should probably be a lot more circumspect about when exactly you're doing weed, dude, especially if you want a lengthy career. I can't believe I'm going to be the guy who um, comes comes down more strongly on the side of uh, pro weed th than you. That, that seems <laughs> a bit a bit uh, against type here. Um, but my reaction to this was and and you make a good point, And I won't deny that Keyshawn Davis is an idiot for for the way he handled this. But my reaction was, I can't believe that here we are in the year 2023 and we're stripping fighters of wins and suspending them for marijuana. Um, pot is not a performance enhancing drug. I get what you're saying that, yes, it can help in certain regards, but it really should not be on any band list. And it's not an illegal drug in many places anymore. I am more appalled by the stupidity of this still being on band list than I am by the stupidity of Keyshawn Davis, although I suppose... <laughs> <laughs> both both sides of this uh, deserve to be called stupid to some extent. I, I think we can agree there is enough stupidity to go around with this issue. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but no, no, no. I, I mean, you're right. And I even thought about that. I remember when uh, Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. was first uh, um, suspended for, for weed. And I remember thinking at the time, well, this is kind of ridiculous. But you got to know what the rules are, dude. Right. You're a pro athlete. You know, just... Time and a place, man. Time and a place. You're a kid. Yep. You can smoke all you want when you're 34. Um, <laughs> all right. Time for this week's episode of The Fight Game. Uh, are you ready, Eric? I am indeed. I have pen. I have paper. I have written the number one. Oh, look at you. <laughs> Talk about being prepped. I practically got it one already. <laughs> and I'm going to say, as I periodically do, I'm not wild about my questions here. But it is the kind of fight that, nonetheless, you have a chance of punching through my poor questions and getting it anyway. All <laughs> okay. right. Uh, number one, if you get this, I, I'd be amazed, with, but it's a context one. Uh, the winner of this fight had a long run of success in his Hall of Fame career, but this was quite possibly his single finest performance. Hmm. Okay, so a Hall of Famer's quite possibly finest performance in a long career obviously quite wide open here um all right i'll just throw one out there uh so i don't waste too much time thinking about it 
Roberto Duran had a long run with a lot of success. And I think people would say his upset of Sugar Ray Leonard was his finest performance. Uh, so let's go with Duran Leonard one. Excellent thinking. Wrong, but excellent thinking. Okay. All right. Um, uh, both men entered the con. I'm, you're okay with me moving on to clue two, right? Yes, 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 yes. I've made my guess. As as you know, I don't. I, I think one one guess per clue is should be the limit. Is the, in the, in the rules <laughs> I've made up in my mind. Yes, outrageous. Both men entered the contest as belt holders. The winner was the one who stepped up in weight, but the supposedly smaller man battered the defending champion into one-sided defeat. I'm happy to repeat that question. I I, th I think I got it. They both came in with belts. The winner was moving up in weight and won in one-sided fashion. You are correct, sir. Okay. So I'll just once again go with the first thing that's coming to mind. The other fighter who, well, no. Uh, would a fighter who is not yet in the Hall of Fame but certainly will be be considered possible like i'm thinking of manny pacquiao do you want to tell me whether i should not be thinking of manny pacquiao you should not be thinking of manny pacquiao this okay. person is absolutely in the hall of fame in the and hall has of been fame. in the hall okay. of fame for a while all right so i will not waste a guess on manny pacquiao because yeah. i was starting yeah, to no. think about pacquiao barrera where he moved up in weight and dominated right. the hell out of him but i don't know that people would even necessarily given how much else Pacquiao went on to accomplish, whether they would even still consider sure. that his best performance. So, uh, okay, someone else who moved up in weight and had probably their finest performance in doing so in a winner. So it was not, it cannot be Pernell Whitaker pulling off a, what, officially a draw. And actually it was Chavez moving up in weight to him anyway. It wasn't the Whitaker moving up in weight. So it wouldn't be that. Um, long Hall of Fame run. I feel like, did we already do Roy Jones and James Tony at some point? I think we might have done. Yeah, it's not that. Yeah. I, I, I'm assuming. I don't count that as a great guess either. I can tell okay. you it is not. All right. <laughs> okay, so trying to picture one more case of a Hall of Famer moving up in weight, and it could have been both had belts i don't know uh, nothing nothing is quite fitting all these uh all these clues for me so why don't we move on to clue three i'll tell you what you've been circling close-ish <laughs> circling yeah. the answer not circling the drain good okay yeah well, <laughs> yeah indeed um number three this was one of the most anticipated if ultimately one-sided entries in what is probably the most storied inter-country rivalry in professional boxing Okay. Say say that one more time. Yeah. This was one of the most anticipated, if ultimately one-sided, entries in what is probably the most storied inter-country rivalry in professional boxing. Hmm. Okay. So I immediately think of Mexico and Puerto Rico. Um, and, at, and for a second there, then I was like thinking of... Uh, Cotto and Sergio Martinez, but of course he Sergio Martinez is not Mexican, so that wouldn't the the Puerto Rico Argentina rivalry is not among uh, boxing's most storied, <laughs> as far as I know. Um, it was anticipated. It was one sided. Could it have been Chavez? I don't know if he was moving up in weight, but I'll just assume maybe he was Chavez. So now it's it was it. 
was he moving up to face Rosario? Was he moving up to face Camacho? I think it more likely people consider the Rosario win one of the best performances of his career. So I'll go ahead and guess Julio Cesar Chavez Sr. against Edwin Rosario. You are correct, sir. Yes. You I'm, are I am correct. fist pumping. I'm doing the honk your horn <laughs> truck driver move with my arm right now. November 21st, 1987 in Las Vegas. Uh, Chavez KO11 Edwin Rosario for Rosario's lightweight belt. Um, clue number four. Uh, 10 years after the fight, the loser died at 34 from an aneurysm to which a lifetime of alcohol and narcotics abuse contributed. The winner wasn't exactly famed for his healthy lifestyle either, but he lived like a monk compared to his pro-boxing son, who very recently <laughs> featured in the fight game himself. Right. And number five, not the best number five at all. Uh, the Lion of Culiacan was the winner on this Las Vegas night. But if the immediate outcome wasn't exactly Rosario for the loser, I'm sorry about that. I was just joking. <laughs> um, El Chapo of San Juan would recover from this loss to add more belts to his collection and would also posthumously be voted into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, not a, yeah. Not a, not a Hall of Fame fifth clue. I was, no, I was it, wasn't, it, it, it wasn't quite. A little, uh, I would say, uh, spelled it out almost too clearly with with, right. the, with the actual names and nicknames all worked in there yeah yeah oh well <laughs> anyway well done and congratulations on not relying on that fifth clue uh i'll, I'll do better next time i promise <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right even if you missed last week's podcast you will by now know that paramount has taken the decision to terminate showtime sports including showtime boxing at the end of the year after almost 40 years of broadcasting fights one of our goals between now and then will be to celebrate those roughly four decades of fights. And we begin with this week's guest, someone who is indelibly associated with Showtime Boxing past and present. He is the former editor of The Ring and a member of the International Boxing Hall of Fame, our good friend, Steve Farhood. Steve, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Eric and Kieran. And I like the word you use, celebrate. That's a good way to do it. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and we certainly will, for the most part, do some celebrating here, but I, I feel like I ought to kick us off on, on a down note. Uh, that, that way it can get happier as it goes along <laughs> and we get into the celebration. But um, first, I'm just curious, what, what were your thoughts when you heard the news, whether, whether last week when it became official or just whatever time it was, weeks or months ago, that you came to believe this was clearly where it was headed? What were your thoughts initially? And also now with a little time to digest it, how are you feeling? Well, it's interesting. I've spoken to a number of my colleagues, both uh, people who are employed by Showtime and, and the announcers who are freelancers. And a lot of us had the same attitude, which is that we heard rumors. The rumors became more serious as time went on. Yet the day that we finally met and were told officially, it kind of struck us as almost being new news. Because I guess part of you, no matter what, holds out hope that we'll keep going. You know, so in that sense, it was, it was rough emotionally. Um, at the same time, I try to look at things positively. For me personally, it was a 23 year run. You don't get many 23 year runs. You know, Showbox was, was a big part of my life as well. And I hope people remember that as much as they remember Showtime Championship Boxing. And, um, so it's, it's a bittersweet time. We'll get one more super negative thing out of the way and then we can be doing all the all the all the positive stuff uh it looks like we've got a couple more shows still to go a couple of pay-per-views at the very least maybe a championship boxing 
doesn't look like we're going to get a chance for a farewell episode of Showbox. That's done and dusted. How heartbreaking is that for you personally, or are there other adjectives that you would like to deploy? <laughs> well, it's it's hard because Showbox, as I said, has been a big part of my career. Um, 23 years, if you think about it. Granted, we didn't do as many shows as a lot of other boxing series, such as Top Rank Boxing, etc. But 23 years is longer than Top Rank Boxing on ESPN originally was. It's longer than Tuesday Night Fights on USA Network was. It's quite a run. And uh, I think in its own way, it sort of established something that had never been done before. and certainly never been done before by others trying as well. And I, I, like I said, I, I hope that it's remembered by a lot of fans as much as the bigger fights. So it's 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 very 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 sad to see Showbox go. Um, I will not be surprised if others try to imitate it and try to bring it back. But without Gordon Hall, I don't think that's possible. Yeah, agreed. So you keep mentioning the the twenty three years. Uh... Do a, do a little storytelling of uh, for anyone who doesn't know, just sort of like how you first came to be a part of the Showtime family. That it was, uh, I, I believe it was simply that everyone found out there was this new show coming, and you threw your name uh, in, into the ring for it. And so, so take us back a bit to uh, when when you first got hired by Showtime. Well, Showbox began in two thousand and one. Ten years prior to that, I did three, two or three shows for Showtime as a third man interviewer. Um, this is going back to the Bobby Ches days, Steve Albert. And I stunk. I was terrible. <laughs> I was nervous. I, I really, I mean, if you think about, and you guys know me pretty well, I'm not really made for TV. I'm not a natural performer. I'm a journalist. I'm a writer. That's what I do. That's what I always did. So I wasn't really ready in the early 90s when I first got the chance. Then Showbox came along, and I called Richie Gaughan, the producer, and Gordon Hall, who I knew both of, and said, you know, keep me in mind. And apparently they auditioned quite a few people for both roles, for the blow-by-blow role and the analyst role, and weren't happy. So mm -hmm. they said, we'll audition you. It was a Costa Zoo fight in Connecticut. We'll audition you with Nick Charles. And I was very happy about that because I had been working with Nick at, at CNN for a couple of years already. So I was comfortable with Nick. And I was told... We're at the end of the road, man. If you, unless you screw up badly, the job's yours. <laughs> okay, I think I, I think I can do that. I can screw up, but not too badly. So I did it, and within a week, I had the job. And Jay Larkin, who of course hired me at the time, God rest his soul. Jay told me, "You can have the job, but you have to get new glasses. You look like an owl." And I said, <laughs> and that day I went to the optometrist, got a new pair of glasses, and smooth from there. <laughs> um so so nick so nick was already hired by the time yes. you had okay um, nick, nick they said at the audition when he walked in the room everybody knew it was his job because he had hmm. a national profile you know um ha had done some boxing um covered boxing a lot for cnn and most importantly loved boxing so it was his favorite sport so uh nick was hired already and uh that made it a lot easier for me because i was working with such a pro i had done a lot of tv over the years the low-level TV. And when you go to a place like Showtime or HBO at the time, it's a different ballgame. It's a different level. So working at that level was was refreshing and, and a challenge. Yeah, the, the very little bit of live TV that I've done, thanks to you, by the way, for uh, hooking me up with a ringside scorer role for, for PBC several years ago. It's amazing how if the blow-by-blow -blow guy is real good, 
knows how to set you up. It's amazing how comfortable you just feel as long as as long as the guy driving the car uh, knows what he's doing and knows how to put you at ease. Sounds like that was the case with yeah. Nick. Oh, exactly the case with Nick. And, and Nick was very enthusiastic. And, you know, working with Nick and then Barry for so many years, Barry Tompkins, so different. Both really good professionals. But Nick was very, very intense. And Barry was very, very loosey-goosey. That was his yeah. So very different working with the two of them. I'm fortunate that both of them were friends. And when you have a personal relationship, it makes a difference because live TV is not like writing. You know, you guys know that. And live TV is you screw up once and you're out of a job. You say the wrong thing and you're out of a job. Yeah. Um, and you really need to trust the guys you're working with. And I fortunately was able to do that with, with both Nick and Barry and before that, Kurt Menefee as well. Mm. What, what is it? about Showtime, do you think that has helped it stand out as such an exemplary broadcaster of fights? I, I think you've mentioned a lot of people's names, and I suspect a large element of that is the quality of the people, be it the ones in front of the camera, be it the Gordon Halls, be it the crew. Uh, what, do you, what do you feel has helped make Showtime stand out? Yeah, I, I think it's cliched for any TV production people to say, oh, we're all family. You hear that all the time. Um, but in the case of Showtime, I've had three main bosses, Jay Larkin, uh, Ken Hirschman, and Steven Espinoza. And they each brought different personalities and different strengths to the jobs. But the two steady rocks of this production all these years have been Gordon Hall and David Dinkin. And they're both incredibly talented people who really cared, hired the best. And I think those two guys, along with, you know, Steven has done, in my opinion, a fantastic job beginning with the whole Mayweather thing that changed big landscape for Showtime. But I think David and Gordon uh, have an awful lot to do with the, the lasting success of Showtime boxing. What are some of the, you know, you talked about that sort of transition from being a print journalist to, to being ringside and, and doing live TV. What are, we've all had, we've all done TV. We've all had moments that have gone well. We've all had moments that have gone poorly do you have some early memories when perhaps early on you thought wow this is going to be great or early on like i'm not gonna last here this is not gonna work for me <laughs> you know i don't care how secure you are you always have that feeling I'm, you know, <laughs> this is my last show i'm gonna screw up and but one one quick story our very first show was at five o'clock on a saturday afternoon at bally's in atlantic city and i was really nervous Predictably, it was the first show of a new series. I knew that they were committed to doing a number of shows. My heart was beating so fast that I actually was concerned that the microphone would pick up the sound. Wow. Fortunately, it didn't. And then once the show started, I was fine and it, it went well from there. But um, the other thing about Showbox specifically that makes it very different from the other series, every year we, we were like the cockroach that they couldn't kill. Every year we weren't sure if we were coming back. How many shows we were going to do? After about nine months, we took like a five-month hiatus. And Jay said, the show will be back. And we trusted him. And it was, did come back. But the number of shows per year, it changed every year. So we were always the bastard stepchild, you know, the one that, that hung around because, mainly because of Gordon. Without Gordon, it never would have lasted 23 years. But um, it was it was always, always shaky. We never was secure. Speaking of Gordon, does it uh, does it bother you when Morrow refers to you as Mr. Boxopedia when Gordon Hall is the actual human walking Mr. Box rack off the top of his head encyclopedia? 
No, I'll take any credit I can get. Okay. <laughs> uh, now I feel like I insulted you by saying you're not, you guys are, are co-Mr. Boxopedias to me. How's that? I think, I think um, Gus Johnson used to refer to me that way also. He was okay. Just, yeah. um, so we, we haven't talked uh, nearly enough, if at all yet, about the fights. Uh, that's, of course, what it's really all about. Um, when you think of your time at Showtime Boxing, is there like a first fight that comes to mind? Uh, so something that, that you called that is absolutely the first thing that, that comes to mind when you look back on the, these couple decades? Well, I'm, I'm going to give you a couple of numbers here that nobody else has. So consider yourself Ooh. very lucky. Okay. 748 total shows. 1,821 total fights. And 640 world title fights. And yes, I... Research that myself. And yes, it took me about 9,000 years. <laughs> those are the numbers. I felt that it was a good time to at least come up with those numbers so people could put things in perspective. But I mean, I guess for some reason, the very first fight that comes to mind was a fight I wasn't at, which was Corrales Castillo. Mm. Remember, anybody remembers it? Some people consider it the greatest fight of all time. I don't know if I'd go that far, but it certainly isn't in the top few. The reason I wasn't there is because the night before we did a show box at, I think it was Foxwoods. And as amazing as Corrales Castillo was, think about how amazing the fight I did, the main event, Cornelius Bundridge against Ku Power. Double knockdowns with the first two punches thrown of the fight, and then a pure knockout with the third punch. So with three punches thrown in the fight, you had three knockdowns and a knockout. And of course, nobody remembers that anymore because everybody remembers because Carras still was the same weekend and the weekend of the boxing writers' dinner in Vegas. And I was stuck at Foxwoods, so I didn't get to go to the greatest fight of all time. But we had a pretty good one too. So that's the first fight I think of. And then you know there have been so many great fights over the years. I think about some of the fights I went to as a writer covering. I mean, the bite fight was an amazing experience. Um, you know, among many others that Showtime had before I joined. It goes back to 1986. I have the So, so the, I'm curious for the the ringside memories then of, of the bite fight. Can you recall the sort of because it's not like you're when we're watching on TV, we're all sort of finding it out whenever whenever the commentators relay to us. Uh, oh, I think I think he bit him. I think he bit him again. Whatever. From your seat at ringside, could you tell what was happening in the moment? What what was what are your memories of just watching the bite go down and and everyone's astonishment over it? Well, as you guys know, when you're a member of the the writers and the working press, your seat isn't anywhere near as good as it is if you're doing live television. Mm -hmm. So what I remember about the moment was I knew exactly what he had done the minute he did it. It was just a combination of where his head was, the reaction of Holofield. I knew what he had done. And then, of course, something not everybody did. It it reminded me a little bit in in its own way of Duran Leonard in in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. When Duran quit, Everybody in the press section kind of turned to the guy next to them and said, did, did I just see that? Like, it was so unbelievable that you couldn't believe it really happened. Did I just see that or am I hallucinating? Well, it was kind of the same with the, the bike fight. But what I remember most distinctly about it, about an hour had passed since the fight ended. I was with Nigel Collins. We walked upstairs to the lobby of the MGM and we saw bodies scattered on the, lo- on the floor near the, near the entrance to the hotel. And I remember very distinctly going up to a security guard and saying, are they dead? And he said, no, they've been trampled. Wow. This is this is something you don't get out of the newspaper because they, they wow. hit a lot of what happened. There were gunshots in the casino, et cetera. 
but there were just bodies thrown, not moving in the lobby from when, I guess, when the gunshot went off, everybody in the casino panicked and tried to leave and ran out, caused a lot of trampling. It's pretty, pretty wild. What an unbelievable night. So, so you're not going to take credit for the trampling. It was not that Steve Farhead and Nigel Collins trampled innocence. No, it was not us. And, and it wasn't because people wanted to get away from us. No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what other question I got to ask you is some of your favorite venues that you've been at. And I think that's particularly relevant for Showbox because a lot of us will say, oh, I like Mandalay Bay or I like MGM Grand. But not all of us get to go to South Dakota and you know, Oklahoma on the regs. Um, you you got to have some cool venues that you've showed up at and thought, well, this is new. You know, you're kind to say cool venues because some of them we didn't want to be there, to be honest with you. Um, what I always tell people about Showbox is that we did shows in Miami, but it was Miami, Oklahoma, not Miami, Florida. Mm. And we did shows in Philadelphia, but it was Philadelphia, Mississippi, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Um, the, the classic case with Showbox is we always said that it took two flights and a two-hour drive to get there. So when you did get there, you were happy. And unfortunately, some of the sites, Miami, Oklahoma, but don't tell anyone, some <laughs> of the sites were, uh, your dinner came out of a vending machine because you didn't dare eat, <laughs> eat anywhere else. So yeah, some interesting places. Obviously, it was very different with Showchamp where they were worried about the quality of the hotel they were staying at. With Showbox, most of the time we stayed in the hotel because it was the only hotel we could stay at. <laughs> but uh, all good memories. And we always had a, a meal out. Um, Gordon would take us all out the night before the show. And that was uh, that became a, a tradition, a part of the show, something we looked forward to that built a lot of – he was very smart because he knew, especially in the mm. beginning, that would build camaraderie. And it did. And, we, and how many shows can you name that had the same analyst, me, Producer Rich Gorn, director Rick Phillips, and executive producer Gordon Hall for 23 years. It just doesn't happen in any any sport, in any any television. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things, that, and I've said it before, uh, even when we've had you, when, we, when we've had Barry, there's the, the sense that comes off the screen from Showbox is, is familial, collegiate. You know, it's really, I always get the feeling like you're sitting on your couch, like you could be sitting on the couch next to us. Right, just just chatting away, describing the fight. It's it definitely has that feel about it. And whereas I think all good announced teams, like you mentioned earlier, have that kind of familial feel. It was especially strong with Showbox. Yeah, I think so. And, and look, I'm not I'm not so full of myself to think that. Look, liking announcers or not liking announcers is a very subjective thing. Eric and I might take the Philly announcer, and Eric might think he's the best in the world, and I might think he stinks. It happens. So I'm not too full of myself to think that there weren't a lot of people out there that said. Yeah, Barry Tompkins really good. That's Steve Farr, and I'm not big on him. That's fine. That's per- it's a personal choice. It's subjective. I get it. But we did we did bring a certain. I think what you said, Kieran, is is accurate. I think we did try to bring that to the show, which was appropriate for the show because it wasn't the biggest fight in the world. You know, when we interviewed these fighters, a lot of them were totally media ignorant. They did not behave themselves. As a result, they were much more open. It made it it made it even easier for us to do our jobs. And they and the one nice thing about it is most of them never forgot where they started. So if they made it, and we had ninety something champions become uh, you know after fighting on the show, if they made it, they never forgot us. And uh, because we were there in the beginning, so that that made it special. But the tone of the show was very relaxed, and we didn't try to make it something it wasn't. Yeah, I was going to say, sort of following on from that, you know, you're talking about 
guys remembering where they started. And we've had some amazing names have started on Showbox, like not just Hall of Famers, but all time greats, you know, guys like Andre Ward. Um, have, can you think of, were, were there people who, as soon as they showed up on Showbox, you thought, oh, this guy, this guy's got something, or this woman's got something. And you turned out to be right. They turned out to be real champions. And also, I'm sure there were plenty where you thought, I think this person's got something, and they never quite made it. Oh, there are plenty of those, sure. But the as far as, you know, amateur background is so important. And I've always cited it as the single most important factor in whether we believe in a prospect or not. So when Andre Ward walks onto the show, an Olympic gold medalist who fought way above his weight in the Olympics, his natural weight, it was hardly a surprise that he excelled. As a matter of fact, I used to criticize him all the time on the show because I wanted he was so good and so dominant that I wanted him to fight a higher level of opposition, only because he could. And then finally he fought Edison Miranda, and the criticism was gone after that. But, yeah, it's it's interesting. There, there have been a number of fighters. I mean, Tim Bradley... He's a, he's a Hall of Famer, a champion in more than one division. First time he fought on Showbox, I wouldn't have given him 10 cents for his future. He just didn't look good. Now he was fighting a southpaw. He won easily, but he didn't look didn't look special. Turned out to be special. The one thing I learned early on, you can't judge a fighter from seeing him once. Another, another good example would be the American debut of Tyson Fury. Um, we went to England, and we did him. And at the time, in America, nobody knew who he was. And he fought this guy named, I think his name was Powell. And he was a mixed martial artist. He wasn't even a boxer. Hmm. Fury looked average at best. And we said, we looked at each other and said, well, he's not going anywhere. Well, I guess we were wrong on that one. (laughs) So you really need to see somebody multiple times to make a judgment. How how tricky is it as a broadcaster to avoid letting the thoughts you came into the fight with steer your commentary. Cause I, I we see that a lot. I'm not going to call anybody out. Like almost every announcer broadcaster falls prey to it at some point that they were high on someone or low on someone. And they're calling the fight according to that narrative until maybe at some point they wake up to that. It's not going that way. How challenging is that as a broadcaster to just call the action in front of you? Well, I think for Showbox it wasn't that challenging for me because I didn't have many expectations. I didn't have many preconceived notions. What's interesting is that my role for the last 12 years during the show on Showtime Championship Boxing is to be the unofficial judge. Mm. You really have to come into a show with no preconceived notions, no baggage, nothing at all, because it's just not fair to the fighters. Now, I watch fights. You know, obviously, I watch every fight that's on TV, practically. I do have some preconceived notions about fighters, but when I sit in that judge's chair, I I can't use them. I have to totally start with a clean slate. And that sometimes can be a little bit of a challenge. And you end up giving a guy around or tempted to give a guy around because he did more than you expected him to do or give the other guy around because this guy did less than you expected him to do. So it's tricky. You have to, it, it, my role on show championship versus Showbox was, was very different. When you're doing the ringside scorer gig, wouldn't it make it easier to just have Steve Weisfeld text you his score at the end of every round so you know you're going to get the round right? How do you know he doesn't? <laughs> Good point. Uh, you, you Steve, stick together, huh? I'm not, I'm not saying anything, but there's a there's a system Steve and I have, left wing, right wing. <laughs> of course, I'm not at, at the fights anymore, so it's, it's a little harder to do. But uh, Right. Right. <laughs> Interestingly, the one judge more than any other, even more than Steve Weisfeld, for some reason, the one judge who, who agrees with me more than any other 
with my card is John McKay, who's a New York well-known New York championship judge. And for some reason, he's the guy. And the one I disagree with, who's a well-respected judge, who I disagree with the most, is Don Trello from Connecticut. So that's just the way it happens. And but that's it's been so much fun. And fortunately, I pay no attention to what's said about my scores on Twitter because if I did, I'd be a raving lunatic, and I'd probably. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. The, the less the less attention paid to Twitter, the better. I think that's a generally a good policy, <laughs> yeah, yeah. especially if um, you're scoring points. Right. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, we talk about um, when we talk about the broadcast, we talk about what people see, which is the actual broadcast. And, and a lot of folks, obviously, viewers don't know and don't care about what goes into it. But one thing that viewers may be unaware of is often when the commentary team, particularly on, on championship boxing, comes up with an interesting fact about a fighter's life or a little statistic, or when Eric and I do when we're previewing it in the podcast, it's not because we're brilliant and we've come up with it ourselves. It's because you provide us all with little cheat sheets and you do all that you've done all this work to come up with notes for announcers and podcasters and the rest of us to use. And, and I'm curious how much fun was that to do that or is it actually a pain in the butt to do it and does that actually take up an awful lot of your time because you come out with some great little factoids in that well i appreciate that no it's, it's not a pain in the ass the difficult most difficult part of it is on occasion to get a fighter either on the phone or social media whatever that can be difficult but once uh you know for the most part as you guys know there's a repeat kind of thing going on with the Showtime Championship Boxing Fighters. So we have someone, Danny Garcia, 11 times, you know, Keith Thurman, eight times. So once you get to know them a little bit, it becomes much easier to do the research, to get a hold of them. And yeah, my, my goal in providing research for the announcers and for the PR staff and for you guys and for whoever takes it, just a nugget here or a nugget there. They're not meant to be conclusive. They're not meant to be, you know, just if you find something you can use, use it. Same for Moro, Al. Morrow and Brian Custer do that a lot with my stuff. So it's just uh, little nuggets to how many times did a guy fight a southpaw up to that point, whatever it is. All right. As as the interview starts to draw uh, toward the end here, I'll, I'll be the guy who asks one more bummer question. I'll I'll, I'll go ahead and, and, and take that on. Um, what odds would I have needed to offer you a decade ago to get you to lay a bet on HBO and Showtime both being out of boxing in a decade. How, how mind-blowing is that at this point? You know, it's it's a great point, Eric. And and, and I remember the day HBO went under five years ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being very sad. And the idiots, the frigging idiots who were happy when something like that happened, or when Showtime went under, there, there were people applauding and were happy. Shame on them. You know, shame on them. But not only HBO and Showtime, but you want you want to toss in the Ring magazine as a as a mm. issue. You know they still have a website presence, but that's another thing that was as much a brand name of boxing as anything. We all know that because we've all been involved with it. So three things: I worked at HBO before I worked at Showtime in a small small capacity. The Ring, obviously, I was editor in chief for a number of years, and then Showtime, twenty three years, all basically going under in a five year period. It makes you it makes you realize, you know, not only is nothing forever, but sometimes, you know, it's 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 kind of heartbreaking what, what can happen to something uh, in an industry that I've been doing. You know, I've been involved with for 45 years. I'd like to make 50. We'll see. Right. Well, <laughs> on, on the flip side, then, of that, I guess, to a sort of a more positive uh, way of looking at the the, the way things went it, back in 2000, 2001, when you were getting ready to do Showbox, if someone had told you 
you're going to continue working for Showtime Boxing for another 20 plus years and and Showbox will still be around at the end of that time. Would you have believed them at the time? No, I wouldn't have believed them. And all I can say about that, Eric, is Showtime's been wonderful to me, been a quality company. I feel I've been wonderful to them, too. Works both ways. But uh, it's just been a fantastic experience. And for me, doing one, being in one industry for 45 years, it's a long time. And you guys know because you've both been in this industry for a long time. Maybe not 45 years, but a long time. The key for me was changes. There had to be changes. If I did the same thing, if I was the editor of The Ring or editor of KO for 45 years, I think it would wear on me. and I'd be a little bored. But because I went from print where I made crappy money, something you guys can also relate to, <laughs> where the money was better, at least at the showtime level, that was a change that was good for me and, and, and brought a whole new set of challenges to do showbox and then to bond the championship. I needed changes. I think I still need changes. And changes keep you fresh and 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 involved and intellectually stimulated. And you have to have that when you're talking about a lifetime of, of a career. Let me wrap this up then. You, Like you said, we've both been around a lot. We've been in two industries that sort of are doing their best to to shoot themselves in the foot at times, media and boxing. And we're in that crossover between the two of them. You talk about changes. We're seeing an awful lot of changes, particularly in media and particularly in broadcast media uh, that are happening incredibly rapidly and and, and not necessarily out of choice as, as, as the industry tries to keep up with the world. What are your thoughts right now about the state of boxing broadcasting right now in in 2023, even just leaving aside, obviously, the very personal element of what's happened to Showtime, but how things are changing and, and, and evolving. How can you how do you imagine boxing broadcasting being in another five, 10 years? Well, it seems there's a, an obvious shift towards streaming versus television. You know, I mean, it's hard for someone my age to realize this, but there are 25 and 30 year old kids who don't have cable TV and don't give a crap about television. I don't know if, you know, your kids are like that, Eric, but... That, that, that's a big shift right there. But you know what? The whole social media, internet technology boom and expansion is probably more significant than any other, you know, more significant than radio, more significant than television, more significant than cable TV, whatever you want to name it. So it only makes sense that that would deeply impact boxing and every other sport. Maybe it will, maybe it'll take longer to impact other sports. But I, I think there's been a big change in that. And boxing's never going to go anywhere because, as we know, there's nothing better than a great fight. But how we see that fight and what, what it takes to see that fight might, might, is, is changing. And then I, I ask myself the question, well, the Internet has already come. It's already established itself. Social media has established itself. Is AI going to have some kind of impact on boxing? Mm. Who knows? You know, that, that seems to be the next step, if not already in place. So... Changes are changes. They, they keep coming. Five years from now, there'll be a pair of AI podcasters interviewing an AI broadcaster, and <laughs> who knows where we'll be. But no, we're fighters. good. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Steve, look, thank you so much for, for coming on and joining us, and uh, we've really appreciated it. And obviously, we wish we were talking to you in different circumstances, but uh, but thanks for everything that you've done on Showtime. And, um, and here's looking forward to success for us all in the, in future years well you guys did a great job on this podcast for a long time how many how, how long was it five five years just five, like five the years. hbl one we we've discussed we <laughs> we <laughs> managed to kill each network after five years of podcasting for so it's your fault. <laughs> yes yes 
Well, you guys have, <laughs> you were worried it was you, weren't you? <laughs> I, I was worried. It was you. No, you no, don't worry, it's us. Yeah, and I hope you land wherever you land and keep doing. Thanks, Steve. Thanks so much, Steve. We really appreciate okay, it. Okay, guys, take care. So great to talk to Steve. Just one of the absolute best people in this sport, and uh, great yeah. to get his perspective on the Showtime news. Great way to kick off a, a couple of months of, of memories and reflections. And um, and that interview is a perfect setup for your top five challenge for next week. Okay. Let's celebrate the magnificent history of Showtime boxing, um, but let's celebrate the show most associated with Steve Farhood. Um, there will be no more Showbox fights. It's complete. No late additions to consider adding to the list after the fact. So please count down the all-time top five Showbox fights. And uh, I will... Oof. I will note that you have my blessing to email Gordon and Steve and ask them to chip in their thoughts. Uh, that'll make it a lot easier for you, I imagine. I want it to be your list, uh, but by all means, use them to help make sure you aren't forgetting anything. And I'll also note that there's also the the 20th anniversary material that they sent a couple of years back that should help quite a bit on, on jogging memory. Um, my first thought was was actually just to assign you the top five Showtime fights, period. But I think it makes more sense to go Showbox first, and and one of us can assign the other all Showtime yeah. fights sometime in the next two months. So there it is, top five Showbox fights of all time. I'm glad you've allowed me to uh, call a friend here. <laughs> yes, you you have two phone of friends to to use on this one, and I fully expect you to take advantage of them. Okay, and actually, I like the idea of. It being like a joint top five list to finish with the the top five Showtime fight, like we each go away and come up with our own list independently, or we do, or we do a draft or top Showtime fights or something like that. I think that's something to think about toward the end. But anyway, yeah. I digress. Uh, I can do that. That should be. Uh, I think Steve already mentioned one or two, right. um, <laughs> so so that'll help. But yes, indeed. Uh, I may have to get you to resend me all that 20th anniversary stuff as I was on the <laughs> I, computer I, that's died. Ah, okay. I do I do have it somewhere. I shall forward. So I'm your third phone a friend on this one. Okay. Th th there you go. All right. Comes out with a terrible fifth clue. Like <laughs> desperately trying to get friends to help him out with his top five assignment. Poor effort, Kieran. Poor positively Tyson Fury-esque of you. If, if you're if you're trying to make a last a late push here to prove yourself still the most washed, that maybe that's what maybe that's what you're up to. Uh, I I won't have it. I have a bruise on my ass. I am the most washed. Damn it. See, there you go. But then the fact that I'm actually attempting to prove my washedness and failing in itself is a sign mm. of my washedness. There's like a meta washed narrative happening <laughs> exactly. here. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. And nobody's listening anymore, so that's fine. We could just keep going with this. But um, in case you are still stuck and listening, that will do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. And many thanks again to Steve Farhood for joining us. We will be back next week with more news, previews, and interviews. Hey, that all rhymes. Mm. Took me 291 episodes to realize that, but that all <laughs> rhymes. There you go. All right, here we go. Something to look forward to for our next stop. Until then... Thank you very much indeed for listening. Be safe, be kind, be